You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Alan Parker said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. The Britflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'd be really helpful, trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time in your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today's guest is Nicholas Vince. Welcome to the show. Hello Stuart. Thank you very much indeed for having me on. Now we're doing a podcast which means people can't see our faces, <laughs> uh, which is a fairly normal thing for audio. Uh, but you're 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 quite famous in uh, in the world of cinema. But people who might not know you, but may well do because they may not have seen, may never have seen your face. Because um, do you want to do you want to sort of give people a sort of actually before we do that, let me rewind the clock uh, and start that conversation again. And say so you're going to be opening up uh, London Horror Festival. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is beginning in October, 3rd to the 6th of October, am I right? 8th to the 10th. Bloody hell, i tell you what, I, I could get fired off my own show here. Um, <laughs> and you're doing, you're doing a show, you're opening it with, with, um, with, with your, a one-man show called I Am Monsters. Do you want to give people a brief synopsis of what that is, and then I'll collect my thoughts? Yes, of course, absolutely. Okay, so... Um, as I say, I'm opening the London Horror Festival, which runs from the 8th of October to the 2nd of November. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so as you say, I'm opening the show with my one man show, I Am Monsters, which is basically my one man show, which is about my love for monsters, which mm-hmm. started as a kid. Uh, and then led to me by various circuitous routes, karma probably, yeah. uh, led me to meeting Clive Barker, being in the film Hellraiser as the Chatterer Cenobite, and uh, then doing Hellraiser, and then doing Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, mm-hmm. and then playing Kinski in Nightbreed, uh, Clive's uh, third film. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's basically about. <clears throat> Some f- stories from behind the scenes on those films, but also Mishang, as I say, my love of monsters, including readings from some of the classic novels that I, you know, am passionate about and had a big influence on my life. Um, so yeah, and it's, I, it's shaping up really nicely and it's going to be fun. A little bit scary in parts, <laughs> a little bit disgusting in parts. Um, Yes, I'm just thinking of one particular part which may make men squirm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be not family entertainment. It's certainly not family So just, just, just generally, on a more general thing, the, Laura, the London Horror Festival, mm. what, so that, that's a live performance experience all the, the entire time it's on. It's not something I've been to, so do you want to give yeah, us a bigger I'm, picture as to what it is? Yeah, sure. So this is the ninth year of the London Horror Festival. I've been the patron of the festival since 2016. Mm -hmm. It is the UK's most established, longest running and largest festival of live horror performance. Mm. Um, I think it's over 30 shows this year. Uh, It's across two venues this year. So uh, it's Starts at the Pleasance Theatre. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, two venues within the Pleasance Theatre uh, each night. And then it ends at the Old Red Lion Theatre with Edred the Vampire, which is written by David Pinner, who is the man who wrote Ritual, the book on which The Wicker Man is based. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, a question I've asked horror filmmakers before, and it seems pertinent... Given mm. given uh, your your uh, your career and what would, mm. and what you're about to do in October is what's your first horror memory now film book you know image whatever you want to whatever you want to draw on what for you would be that kind of first stepping stone into horror fandom for you that's really a good question because obviously I've been thinking a lot about this mm. recently and I worked I mean. Definitely as a teenager of the definite films, but I realized actually my first encounter with monsters is going to have been from behind the sofa mm-hmm. with Doctor Who and the Daleks. Okay. And I, and I mean the original broadcast. I mean, you know, the original William Hartnell, um, black and white TV series is probably where I first encountered monsters, um, as a four year old. Um, when that was first broadcast. And then by the time I was around about, you know, in my teens, then, yeah, it's going to be Mask of the Red Death, Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Mask of the Red Death. And where, where, where would you have seen that? On TV. I would have seen it on TV. Yeah. Um, because we're talking about the 19th, you know, the early 70s. Right. Um, and I, it's going to be late night screenings of mm. horror films. I mean, you know, we couldn't really see them. So I have got a copy of, um, I'm going to 
lean away from the microphone for two seconds whilst I pick up a book called A Pictorial History of Horror Movies by Dennis Gifford, mm-hmm. um, which was published in 19-something or other. He's quickly going across to publish... It doesn't actually give me the year. Uh, 1973. So I would have been 15 years old. So that's a lot of my love of horror movies comes from reading that, that beautifully illustrated book. Um, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where it all kicked off for me. Okay. Now you 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 met Clive Barker at uh, at Mountain View, and I should I'll, I'll catch up with myself now. So when I sort of shot my boat there early with the introduction, what mm. I was trying to get at <laughs> when my brain wasn't quite firing as it should yeah. do was. You've, you've, you're, you're, fam- you're famous for fil- roles in film where people won't recognise your mm. face because of the construction of the character you're playing, the Cenobite yeah. and Kinski. Um, now, it's interesting that you were obviously at theatre school, Mountain View, uh, where you met Clive. Um, now, obviously, that, that's just happens. That that's, not, that's obviously not part of the lesson structure, is it? Meet Clive Barker and be in his films. Um, mm. but, but thinking of what you learn acting, what you learned about acting at theatre school, how much of what, what you were able to do prepared you for? And I think I read somewhere you said you couldn't, you couldn't see, speak or hear. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's my shorthand. Okay, so... so okay, so, yeah. Because <laughs> that strikes me as very I, difficult to, to act yeah, from absolutely. that point on. I mean, basically, when I say I couldn't hear... Mm-hmm. I, it's like having your hands placed over your ears. Okay. You can hear, but it's obviously you've got the, the sound of the rushing sea in your ear and you can kind of hear what's being shouted at you, basically. Mm. Um, normal conversation, forget it. Mm. Um, you, the speaking wise, it's like if you shove your hands in your mouth. Right. You can kind of communicate, mm-hmm. but it's not terribly easy. And in terms of being able to see, there was a pinhole at my left eye that showed the floor. Mm. And that's what I could see. So basically, I was led around by that. So it was an extraordinarily constrictive makeup and, mar- and costume to wear. Mm. In terms of what I learned at drama school, I do remember having a wonderful lady who, whose name entirely escapes me now, but we did this lesson. She said, okay, act anger through your nose. And you're thinking, what? What are you <laughs> talking about, woman? But actually, it kind of, it, what she was basically saying, and this is a lot to do with, um, and then, you know, there's two teachers that I, I, I thank mm. and re- remembered. So it was Gwyneth. Her name was Gwyneth. Um, she was saying, act, you know, act anger through your elbow. And you think, yeah, what she's actually saying is think about emotion, but the only part of you that can move is like your elbow. How are you going to convey to an audience how, how to do that? The other uh, teacher we had was Nick, who used to do our mime classes. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, OK, bring in a cardboard box and you're going to put the card. You're not allowed to draw on the cardboard box. But you've got to animate this cardboard box and give it a character and make it make it real. And so, you know, it's it's called mask work in in theatre. And so those are the things that I learned at drama school that, yeah, really helped me. It's like 
It becomes a question of remembering. Well, it remembers your, you have to remember your blocking. Mm. Uh, so basically, it's going, Nick, take three places, stop, raise your left hand, shove it in Ashley's mouth. Um, it wasn't quite as bad as that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, so it, it's those physical memory, you know, you're concentrating purely and being able to recreate. Once it's set, you've then got to be able to recreate it as accurately as possible. So because obviously there's going to be lights, which I'm totally unaware of, and a camera, which I'm totally unaware of. Um, occasionally there was smoke on screen as well, on stage, on, on set as well. Um, all of which doesn't help in terms of being, but so it, it really is just a question of remembering your blocking and doing as you're told. I was going to say, it's kind of like the opposite of, um, of the kind of, the, the, when, when, when actors are, say, naked or something and they're having to act and there's a lot of trust in terms of what you're being asked to do is for the, is for the purpose of the film to just trust what we're doing. In the same way, the opposite, you're completely covered and restricted. Mm. So you're kind of having to go, what you've been told to do, just make sure you do it and trust that that's going to be what the camera needs to see. Yeah, and I think some, uh, I, I, uh, an enthusiast, I always use the word enthusiast because Clive um, says he prefers enthusiasts to fan. Hmm. Um, you know, Hellraiser enthusiast. I think it was a very measured performance. And I think, well, yes, just because that's all I could do. Hmm. But in fact, that gives Chatterer amazing power. And then just that stillness. And I was watching again, watching it recently and just realized that actually just the fact that he is completely still most of the time unless he's moving forward and chattering his teeth and people find that really creepy and very scary you actually have to do very little less is certainly more you're absolutely right it's about trusting mm. you know and of course i couldn't see you know doug bradley who played pinhead has you know talked about the fact that when he looked at himself in the mirror he found Pinhead. He could see exactly who this character was as a, and, you know, could see the power of that thing and that, you know, less is more. In my case, I had no choice. Mm. And, of course, I couldn't see it until actually I saw it up on screen. And then you don't really watch it as a member of the audience. You watch it as yourself and you think, oh, yeah, that was the day in which this happened. And you, you remember the entire filming of experience of it. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is about trust. But also, you know, the, the amazing visual, visual I'd seen, it would have been Polaroids. I possibly would have seen Polaroids from the makeup test. Hmm. Um, those instamatic things. Um, but that's all I had to go on. Uh, and then it was just literally the physical experience of just doing, doing as I was told. Now, you, you from, what, from what I've been able to glean, you, you had sort of, life experience plus input creative input into the design of chatterer from your own from your own teenage experience yeah i mean it, it, it's clive's you know it's clive's design mm. i i didn't actually have the creative input in when i was saying oh well, this is what it looked like mm. clive took something that had happened to me when i was a teenager and was to do with some reconstructive surgery on my face which he then used as, as inspiration for Chatterer. So I, you know, I just walked into the, into the, um, into the makeup studios and saying, yeah, this is what you're going to wear. And in fact, I hadn't made the connection between my, you know, the story I'd told Clive a year or so before 
um, I hadn't made that connection and you know, this put of things I could talk about in the show. Can I, ask, can I ask you then, because the reason I wanted to just confirm before I ask mm. is like, can you, can you imagine, I mean, I, I can understand that. You tell him about it, he's a writer and, and filmmaker and he takes that mm. on board and thinks that's, there's, there's, I guess there's, there's, there's beauty to be found in that, in, in making a horror out of, uh, and, and celebrating it in a, in, in a creation for a film and stuff. But mm. can you, I imagine you as a teenager getting this, this reconstructed, of, of your jaw mm. was a fairly traumatic experience. Can you, mm. can you, can you, can you put yourself in the shoes of your teenage self and think of the idea that relaying that story years later would end up being the inspiration for a creature in a horror film? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a complete disconnect. You know, there's, there's no, I mean, at the time, of course, I mean, the, the, the reconstructive surgery was all part of the journey to becoming an actor anyway. I'd always wanted, you know, I was doing theatre and, and um, I was doing amateur theatre, you know, that was my love. That was my big passion. That's what I really wanted to be. Um, but was kind of aware of the fact that I needed to have this reconstructive surgery um, for not for cosmetic reasons, but for medical reasons. Right. Um, so I knew I had to go through that. Yeah, the, uh, that nineteen-year-old had no idea, you know, and cannot, cannot, and even now, and as I say, it wasn't until Clive had, put, you know, had had the conversation about a year or so, or some time after Hellraiser came out, I was like, oh yeah, that was part of the inspiration of like, oh yeah, oh, oh okay, yeah, I had no idea, just, not, just not, did not enter my head that that's what was going on, um, and I, I think. Now I know, and I look at it, I think, oh, yeah, that's perfectly blindingly obvious. Now, but, yeah, no now, idea. Part, part of your, part of your po post sort of acting journey was to, to, to turn your hand to writing, uh, which mm. I think is certainly what you've been doing more of since Nightbreed mm. than anything else, I guess, isn't it? In terms mm. of, um, but uh, now, when you first go to America and you visit Marvel offices, mm. now, I read. Now you can tell me if I've got this wrong. You 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 come up with an outline on the plane on the way over, and then you pitch uh -huh. that in Mar to the Marvel editor of Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly exactly how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> like, so uh, can I can uh, I just can I just fill in a little gap there that I haven't got? You were going to go to the office while you were going there. That was part of your trip, or was that a? Yeah, basically. So what happened was when we were making Nightbreed. Yeah, I. Got to meet all these. Okay, is the usual combination of things. So I'm going to. I, first time I got enough money in my life to actually be able to afford to go to America. Right. And that's all as a result of Nightbreed. So I think great, I'm going to go across. At the same time, they started putting together the Hellraiser comics, mm -hmm. uh, and this is Marvel under the Epic uh, label. Right. And I meet. Now, I'd met Neil Gaiman before, but I got to hang out with Neil a lot more around about that. You know, I'd met Neil was around during Hellraiser, but I didn't really get to know him terribly well then. But, you know, Neil's a very good friend of Clive's and I was hanging out with Clive and you know, Neil was there. And then, you know, I used to hang out with Neil quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and also the artist John Bolton um, and obviously through Neil, David McKean and so on. And, I've, and I'd already written some short story, a short story or two that had been published. And they were all saying to Nick, you should, you know, have a go, have a try. So I literally, I thought, oh, okay. 
Um, and now we knew the address for Marvel Comics because it was printed inside every single Marvel comic. Right. <laughs> I can't remember. And I literally just turned up on the day, completely unannounced. No, you know, this is way before emails. This is way before emails. <laughs> um, and it's like, and I don't know if Kyle mentioned it or anything, but I literally went into the Marvel offices and went to the reception and said, hi, my name's Nicholas Vince. I'd like to speak to Dan Chichester, who is the editor. And they said, oh, yeah, please. And they, they obviously rang through and I, you know, just said, you know, please take a seat. And 20 minutes later, um, an intern comes scurrying out and she says, oh, Dan is so sorry. He's so sorry he didn't recognize your name. But I'm thinking... Why would he recognize my name? <laughs> I'm just an actor. Um, and I had no, but Dad was really nice. And he helped, obviously had made the connection with the chatterer. And um, I literally sat there and pitched the story that I'd written on the plane. And I said, oh, thank you so much. It's like, I have no idea. I have no idea how to write a comic. How do you do that? This is Dad. And he remembered. I said, I have no idea how you lay out the script. And he literally just reached into his drawer and flung this script across the across the room at me, and uh, he said, "That's this is how you lay it out." And in those days, you know, this is Marvel, and they had a very particular method of writing comics, yeah. uh, known as the Marvel method. And it, you know, it's just like, okay, I got that. And I remember getting back and phoning up Neil Gaiman, saying, "Neil, what have I done?" And, <laughs> and him just being very encouraging and said, "Yeah, that's a nice idea." Nick. Think about this. And it was really fascinating process. And that led on to writing Hellraiser comics, Nightbreed comics. I had my own um, comics uh, for Marvel UK. I, wrote, I had my own title, a monthly title, Warhead, mm. Warheads for a while. And then I wrote limited edition series, uh, Mortigan, Garth, Immortalis, uh, and so on. And so, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's just like sheer chutzpah. Just pure. I was going to say, you, that, that, if ever there's evidence of if you don't ask, you don't get. That's that's mm. that's the start of any auspicious career is just to walk in and go, can I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, honestly, I don't think I have the chutzpah now to actually do. It's just like, yeah, oh, the sheer exuberance of youth. <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's a it's it's a folly, and it's a it's it's got no shame, has it? No, absolutely. Having said youth. I was in my 30s. I was in... That's no, youth to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> me too now. <laughs> now, you, you also, you're also a pro, quite a prolific short story writer as well. Mm. Um, and with the... I mean, and, and I, I, was, I, mean I, I write screenplay stuff um, and certainly focus on horror. And mm. the thing I'm always wrestling with is, you know, the, 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 in, the, the never-ending search for, I've not seen that before. Mm. Um, so for you, what's your, what's your kind of what's your brainstorming brain fart process that gets you to that nugget, and then when you've got that nugget, where how do you develop it into stories for you? What, what what's your kind of process as a writer? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it's basically it's often a phrase. It's just like okay, I think one of the short stories was inspired by the phrase storyteller. And then I thought, oh, storyteller, what, what about a story taker? Mm. And the whole, and it's just like, oh yeah, so it's a story taker. So what does that mean? Who, who, who would be a story taker and why would they take stories? And what happens to someone if you take their stories away? 
if you take their memories away. And then I was like, okay, almost a little like a vampire. I was like, okay, it's like somebody who lives off. And then you start building, okay, well, why would somebody, you know, this is obviously a monstrous thing to do, but what if somebody actually embraced that? You know, they wanted that, you know. So I think what I like to do is you kind of take one thing that's slightly out you know i i like to write as much as possible in the real real world and then you just twist something mm. you take somebody who was away from the, the real world um yeah so i think yeah, that's the kind of thing and then you just say okay well if then if that then what okay well what does that mean and then you just kind of keep on spinning out the ideas. And I usually make lots and lots of notes. Um, it's like writing the one man show. Uh, you know, and it's like, these are my stories, but it's like, oh yeah, no, I'll have that. And then you realize the show's going to be three hours. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's always been my, when I was writing comics, that's an interesting skill. Somebody was asking me about writing comics. Well, what are you? when you write a monthly comic for Marvel, hmm. and it used to be 22 pages, now I understand it's 20. Basically, you knew which pages the adverts were going to appear on. Right. So you knew, so if you open up a comic, you've got the front cover, you've got the inside front cover is either a piece of editorial, most likely to be a an advert. Hmm. And then, so the first page that you see is on the right-hand page. So you then turn over the page, you've probably got a double page spread. And then when you turn over the next page, you've got another advert on the left-hand side. Now, therefore, whatever that you're, you've got to think about what, who's going, which page you're going to be turning over. And if you're going to reveal something, then you've got to be, reveal it at the top of a left-hand page. So you have to set it up on the bottom right of the right-hand page. <laughs> And it's all that kind of very technical thing. So I remember having a an A4 sheet where I'd drawn out all the pages and knew which pages there, and then I'd just make little thumbnails as to little mental notes as to okay, this is what, and then you start thinking of the three act structure, structure and so on. And I guess I don't know how you work when you're writing, you know, for film screenplays because I'm working on a screenplay as well, a feature film. I've done some short films. You kind of either go for a three-act structure or a five-act structure. Yeah. Um, you know, you have your story arcs and so on. You just kind of think, okay, well, what, 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 what are the beat moments? What's, what's going to hit when? And how can we twist this? So those are kind of like, you know, that's my process. No, I, I mean, mean I, 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 I'm going to say it's that, it's, it's the fighting, it's the fighting of the evolution of, of an yeah. idea. Because the, the thing that you always have to trust in that I can never, that I can never trust in until I'm in it, is the time it takes for an idea to settle, you know, in the sense of there's that immediate excitement and you can't stop writing and then you go, no, this connects. This is just nonsense. I'm an imposter. And yes. and then you then you leave it for a, maybe a week, maybe a month, you know, maybe yeah. just 24 hours. Or maybe you just talk to a friend and you and then yeah. you go, oh, yeah, there's this. Um, I mean, I, I do, it's interesting you said about storytelling, story taking. I, 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 I had a similar experience just this week where I'd said, I said, I've got this idea about how if police don't solve a crime, it reverts to next of kin. And he went, oh, kinship justice. And I'm like, that's the fucking title. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I hadn't even thought about it. You know, it's like, without that conversation, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think... It's very interesting you say that because a lot of it is 
walking away in order to come back with a fresh set of eyes and saying, OK. And I remember somebody talking to me about creative writing and writing. You know, it, it is poly. You just have to poly. You have to get something down on paper. Hmm. Because then you've got something that you can rework and so on. And, it, and I, I've had friends refer to it as a vomit draft. I use the it's phrase like, myself. Yeah, yeah. It's like, but I, one of those moments I really like when I'm writing either short stories or anything is like the moment when a character surprises you. You've got, and they actually, and you think, oh, I didn't expect them to do that. And you suddenly think, oh, yeah, you, you, you're so into that character. And you think you're really writing that character, and you know, and you think, you, you know what their motivations are, and then suddenly there's a little flash, and they do the the character does something unexpected. It sounds as if we're talking about voices in your in your head. It's close to it though, isn't it? It is. It is because if you don't, I think if you don't hear those voices, that voice clearly in your head, you don't have that character. Even if it doesn't come out, even if you don't write it in the short story, you don't physically describe it. And in fact, I always avoid physically describing people unless it's really pertinent to the plot because then the reader can do that and i think it helps them get involved in a short story obviously when you're writing film i think it's slightly different you need to be able to say okay well this is what the character's motivations are and again why again i suppose you don't unless it's absolutely imperative that they're I do it less and less. I mean, it's sort of like, unless, I think sometimes where you want to create the image of someone being inferior or superior to someone, mm. physically speaking. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I listen to a, a script writing podcast called Script Notes, and it's like, you know, you can get drawn into, oh, they were good looking. They were a Adonis. They were this. They was, she was a buxom blonde and yada, yada, yada. And you're like, that's not character. That's just description. No. That's just describing no. something with it. And if you say yeah. someone's beautiful, I mean, let's be honest, if you went and looked up most um, A-list um, actor books as to who you're going to cast, they're ostensibly beautiful people. You don't need to say out the script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you... I think this is one of the fascinating things and more and more with independent film, for example. You know, you get leads who are not... I was just going to think of, I was trying to remember, it'll come to the name of the film I'm thinking of, Will, uh, Westworld. Mm. Spoiler alert, the hero dies at the end of the first reel. And it's like, what? No, no, but he's the lead. He just, what? And I remember it's like, you can't do that. Nobody ever does that. And it's like, now suddenly you've got the person who, you know, you think, oh yeah, he's the sidekick. Suddenly they come to the fore. Um, I'm trying to think who plays it. I've got the name Dumb in my head. And I think those are the more interesting films where you don't have the classical handsome leading man um, or leading woman. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, that's kind of far more interesting character to me. Now, when, when you were obviously writing fiction is one thing, mm. but when you're writing to perform your own story... Mm. How do you how do you kill your darlings when it's about yourself? Oh, thank you. It's a really <laughs> good question. And also, how do you write about pain and make it interesting? Because it's, it's. I was talking to Clive about this, mm. and he was saying, you know, there's a real danger that is like, oh, it's really tough. I couldn't really see it. It's really tough. It's horrible. 
I just think, well, that's not what I remember about Hellraiser. Yes, it was tough. And there, uh, to be honest, as you, if you come and see the show, you'll discover some really unpleasant things happened to me during the making of those movies. Um, but that's not the entire experience of making Hellraiser. Um, I know that I laughed way too much during Hellraiser because uh, I got told off for it. <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah, my experience. How do you kill your darlings? It's it's tough. It's been tough because when I wrote the first draft, so this is supposed to be a 50-minute show with a Q&A mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah. Some minutes for audience questions at the end. And by the way, if you're coming to see the show, and please come and see the show, think up with some really good questions because I'm giving away a pair of my, a, a copy of my short stories, uh, the two uh, volumes uh, of short stories, to the, what I consider the best question in those 10 minutes. So okay. you'll get, yeah, save yourself some money and get to read my short stories. Um, yeah, how do I kill off the darlings? Well, it's, yeah, so, sorry, the first thing I was going to say was that when I did the first read-through, 50 minutes, it was actually an hour and 20, and mm. I was rushing. Wow. <laughs> my, my director's like, that was an hour and 20, and you rushed it. Oh, okay, so I was like, okay, so I'm going to have to cut that quote. I'm going to have to cut those stories. I'm going to have to cut those stories. And, it, and I was, funny enough, I was out with my director today because we were visiting the venue uh, mm. where we were performing uh, The Pleasants. Uh, for a technical and marketing meeting. And he said, you know what, in the most recent version, I've kind of gone too far now, the other way. Um, he said, because you're putting in one-liners. It was like, you think, no, I want to know more about that. So it's that thing of like, I have no idea now. I mean, I start rehearsal. We get it on its feet on Monday. Um, I'm actually going to go, hopefully going to a rehearsal space uh, on Monday with the script in my hand. And I'm still thinking, oh, I need to expand that bit and, and so on. How do I kill the guard darling? I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> so you the rehearsal process is I was gonna say I, you're gonna you're gonna is it three you're doing three performances at the festival? I'm doing three performances, yeah. And then are you are you gonna be playing elsewhere with this or is this all Yes, the answer so the idea of this is a preview. Um let's see if this works and what we've got. Um there are there are inquiries both in this country and abroad um, right, okay. about whether or not I can take it. Cause the, the plan would be to, yeah, take it as many, you know, I'll take it anywhere that will take me. Um, but those, those are in the very early stages, but okay. well, we'll, keep them cro- we'll keep them crossed for you. Say again. We'll keep them crossed for you. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. But the, the other interesting thing is that two people independently talking um, about this were, um, the piece of advice is, even if it's on a phone, make sure somebody is recording the performance so that if you're then doing it after three months, you can look back and say, oh, yeah, this is what I was doing okay. <laughs> the last time I had to do this. On, uh... In fact, I got some really good advice from Louise Jameson, uh, the actress from Doctor Who, right. who acted uh, opposite Tom Baker. Uh, and she was, I said, okay, because she said, I was telling her about this uh, last night, I met her uh, last night, and um, she was saying, really good piece of advice is like, make sure that you have a really good mate who can come round to the dressing room the moment you've finished, and just say you're just enthusiastic and be good, because otherwise you're left in the dressing room all by yourself, yes. having walked off stage, and I thought... 
that is really true. Now that's really interesting because um, no, that, seems, that seems really wise because there's a, there's um, obviously the, the adrenaline you'll be because I guess I guess it's a one man show, so it's just you and a microphone, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you a microphone and an auditorium, so that's a lot yeah. of that's a lot of weight on your shoulders and a, yeah, and not a lot of weight on the rest of us. No, no. So it's just like. Yes, and, and, and uh, there, there are those moments where you put it, phrase it like that, and it's like, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? Um, I wasn't uh, intending to scare you there. I was more, pr- I was, I was more, I'm more admiring you. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, like the, it's like the other day, it's like that, com- that moment where it's like, I'm really looking forward to this and I'm really excited about it. And then five minutes later, oh my God, this is terrifying. Oh, what the hell? As you said yourself, it's that thing when you're writing, you think, why the hell did I ever think I could write? Because <laughs> this is just rubbish. Um, and I think this is part of the whole process. Um, but I should say the reason I was um, with Louise Jameson last night um, was we were doing a reading of some of the work of a gentleman called David Pinner, who wrote the book Ritual, on which The Wicker Man, the film, was based. Okay. Um, and I was like, and he was saying that the only reason he, that film got made is because Christopher Lee invited him out to lunch in order to buy the rights for the book of him. Um, and the only reason he, he, he went to, to, to the lunch was because he'd seen Dracula as a kid and been terrified of Dracula and he wanted to actually meet the man. Um, but yeah, we were doing this for a part of the London Horror Festival is a thing called Edred the Vampire, and which is going to be at the uh, Old Red Lion at the end of uh, 28th of October to the 2nd of November. Okay. And it was really funny. Um, it's a really funny play because uh, they were doing an excerpt. Uh, they had the cut, they've cast it and they were doing an excert. Um, and we had Madeline Smith uh, from Horror uh, Hammer there as well. So it was a really, really funny evening. But again, every actor I know I've spoken to who's done a one-man show I've been picking their brains as to find out the pieces of good advice and in terms of the physicality of it are you are you a person that's going to be bounding about the stage or are you a person that's going to be like dead-eyeing the people right in the middle (laughs) well just making sure everyone's paying attention yeah, no, absolutely. Well, of course, what I'm really hoping is that there's going to be so many lights in my eyes, I can't actually see the audience. Um, there is a thing about being on stage where you look out into the audience. Normally, when you've got, and it's you know, we're a, it's a 200 seater theatre. So, although I'm literally four feet away from the front row, mm-hmm. uh, on a slight, you know, it's a it's a very slight stage. There's a very steep rake to the auditorium, so I will you know, I will know where the audience are. But the lighting will probably be in front of me, so I won't physically be able to see everybody's faces. Um, but they're going to be able to see. But it's being able to connect um, with them. Uh, I'm going to be moving around the stage because otherwise it's just going to be really boring for people. Um, yeah, and we've got there are going to be some pictures on stage, and you know it's going to be properly staged. It's a really nice venue. Mm. It's a really nice stage. Um, as I say. First time to see it today. I'm really pleased with it. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to to mask over any of my incorrect starts uh, <laughs> and reinforce what you've been saying in terms of the uh, London Horror Festival and your performances and the like. Right. But before we started, you mentioned two other things to me that we should probably alert people to. So mm. you mentioned Borley Rectory. 
the um, yes. the animation. Um, yes. Is this getting is this getting a release? Yes. So this is Ashley Thorpe's um, drama documentary, I guess, which, as you say, is animated. Uh, strictly speaking, I think the technique is called rotoscope. Okay. Which is basically live action, uh, and Ashley put in all the ghosts in the background and so on. So this is this was a real labor of love for Ashley. Mm. Um, now I can't, it's literally taken him years to do it. Uh, and it started off as a short film and then kind of grew like Topsy into a feature film. Uh, it's narrated by Julian Stan, Sands. It stars Reese Shearsmith. Mm. Um, Yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Far more. It stars Reese Shearsmith. Um, uh, I'm a feature player in this one. And um, <laughs> the, it's, that's um, extraordinary because it's black and white, but it tells. Have you heard of Borley Rectory before? Not until you mentioned it. No, and I'm and oh, I'm, okay. fascinated, I'm right. fascinated now. So this is a, obviously a famously haunted location in in the UK. Yeah, it it was basically in the nineteen uh, the early part of last century. Yeah, the 20s. It was known as the most haunted house in Britain, uh, and this was partly to do with a man called. Harry Price, who investigated the hauntings at Borley Rectory uh, and wrote a book about it. And it was, you know, it was the place where people went to go and study psychic phenomena because and it became known as that. So the film is about the people. And I guess in some ways it's about it's about the power of story mm -hmm. um, and the effect it has on the, you know, if you move into a, well, it's like I mentioned it in one of my short stories, funnily enough, on ghosts and so on. If you walk into a room and have a, you know, and somebody says, yeah, please go and wait in here and, and I'll be with you whilst I get the coffee on. Um, you'll, you'll mosey on around the bookshelves or even like me, I'll always mosey on around somebody's bookshelf and find out what books they've got. Um, and you'll sit down and perhaps relax and so on. Um, but if you, somebody says to you, please wait in that room. Oh, by the way, there's a story that it's haunted. There's, there's a completely different dynamic. You're going to want to be the person who's sensitive enough to have felt something or felt a chill or to, oh, yeah, I can definitely feel that. Yeah, I can, you know. Or, or the person that leaves as quick as you get there. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so it's a completely, yeah, so I think this is what I really like about And as I say, Ashley Thorpe did this amazing job where you spend a lot of your time watching this and there are quite long periods when nothing really seems to be happening but you're looking at the mist to try and work out hold on is there something there am i what am i seeing what am i watching is there a ghost of a nun there is there a ghost of somebody is that mist creating something um so yeah it's coming out from nucleus films yeah. and uh i'm going to click on the right tab so i can give you the right date um it's coming out release date of the 14th of October. Fantastic. From Nucleus Films. And it, yeah, they do, they've done an amazing um, uh, job of the DVD extras and have a look at it. Um, but also one of the things that excited Ashley Thorpe when he was a child and also Reese Shearsmith was the Unsworth Book of Ghosts. And the publisher are republishing the book with an introduction by Reese. Wowza. 
Um, yeah, so it, 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 it's a big thing. Um, I, I, it's quite extraordinary. Um, so yeah, that's, I think it's going to be really interesting. So the book's going to be coming out about the same time as the, as the uh, Blu-ray, as far as I understand. Well, that's fantastic news from Nucleus Films, who I've had on, yes. I've had on this uh, podcast in the past. Yeah. Um, now, uh, in terms of the characters you're famous for, um, there's great news for fans of of Nightbreed, who I guess have been mm. waiting waiting a while for this one, haven't they? Yeah. So this is from from Arrow Video, and they're going to do a UK uh, limited edition Blu-ray, mm. and um, that has got the theatrical cut and the recent director's cut uh, of Nightbreed. Um, and it's so, got... so is that, that's the one that played at Fright, the one that played at Fright Fest in recent years. Ah, uh, no, funnily enough, that's the Cabal cut. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So, the, so basically there was the original theatrical cut, mm-hmm. and then a gentleman called Russell Cherrington discovered um, a work print of Nightbreed on one of Clive Barker's shelves, mm-hmm. um, because Clive Barker's Apparently, his bookshelves are all too deep. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, <laughs> and, you know, got the, so Russell worked with somebody to create the Cabal cut, which is basically much closer to the script and the book Cabal on which it was based. And through that, there was a huge surge of fan interest um, in seeing what Clive had originally wanted to create before yeah. the studio got turned it into a stalk and slash film. Yeah. And through the interest in the Cabal cut, there was a thing called Occupy Midian and um, there was a big online petition. And through all that interest, there was somebody found the original footage wow. that had been cut. Um, that was then all digitized and they created what is now known as the director's cut. Um, but again, it's the, it's the usual thing with Arrow. They're you know doing so they repackaged it and they've got a whole new load of extras. And I did an interview for them, um, and they've got things like rehearsal tests and theatrical and rare TV spots and matte painting tests. Oh, yes, because oh god, this is, you may know this name better than I, and I'm desperately trying to remember the name of the gentleman who designed Star Wars, who did. Oh, you, 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 I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Star Wars authority, so you, you right. know more than I. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, so basically, the gentleman who did uh, Star Wars mm. did a whole load of matte painting for Nightbreed and did a whole load of set decoration. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Um, and I. Shame that there are going to be listeners to this podcast who are going to be screaming at the saying, Nick, how can you not remember this name? They might be shouting um, at me as well, so we'll, we'll share that one. Yeah, yeah, we'll, sh- we'll share that honor between the two of us. Um, but yeah, Cutting Compromise, a video interview with Mark Goldblatt. Oh, that's, in- yeah, there's a whole load of really interesting um, uh, behind the scenes interviews and, oh, when, uh, when, and does the blue, when does the blue, limited blu-ray come out, come out this one comes out i believe it's the 28th of october okay so uh, just in time for halloween stroke brexit yes uh, <laughs> we're not even going to think about that we're no we're not that. no let's concentrate on halloween yeah <laughs> <laughs> or is we halloween should... a metaphor i don't know i don't know anymore um yeah well look, let's remind people then when when what's the name of your one man show and when can they see it uh, my one-man show is titled I Am Monsters. 
It runs from October the 8th to the 10th uh, at the Pleasance London, mm -hmm. and uh, it is part of the London Horror Festival, which has got 30-odd shows. So really check out the London Horror Festival, you know, londonhorrorfestival.co.uk, because there are some amazing shows, and I really should massively shout out. Uh, you know, my fellow performers as part of the festival, because there really are some extraordinarily good, talented shows. What I love about the festival is I've been able to watch people come back, bringing sh their shows back again to the London Horror Festival. So there are a number of shows I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, for that simple reason, because I think, oh, God, it's you. Yeah, you're brilliant. I really want to go and see your show. Brilliant. Well, look, we'll put links in the show notes so people can go and have a full look at what's, what the offer is. And okay. And also for your show as well. And it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me on, Stuart. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.